Hey, if you listen to this podcast week after week, then you will absolutely love my books. There's Travel Light, which basically gives you all of the steps for following your heart. And then there's Knowing Where to Look, which is full of inspirational stories and anecdotes that will help you shift your perspective in the most inspiring way. And for those of you who can't seem to crack the meditation code, grab a copy of Bliss More, How to Succeed in Meditation Without Really Trying, and your meditation practice will never be the same. All of those books are available on Amazon, as well as everywhere else books are sold. That's Travel Light, Knowing Where to Look, and Bliss More. All right, back to the show. You know, most people say, well, you believe it's going to happen the whole time and that makes it happen. I sort of thought it would never happen, (laughs) even (laughs) because I knew all of the sort of weird difficulties and legal problems, political problems, financial issues. And I just thought it would fall apart at some point. And I think I was okay with that. And even when we started construction and we're going to open it, I also knew that it could fail and that people might not want to climb up three flights of stairs to walk on an elevated walkway that has a history. You know, elevated walkways have a history of failure in urban planning in the U.S. And that would all the plantings die? Because all this planting you see up there is in 12 inches of soil, basically. And it's on a bridge, so it freezes from above and below. It heats from above and below. It's a really harsh environment. Would all the plants get trampled? Would the plankings collapse? So, you know, even when we opened, I wasn't sure, is this thing going to work? Hello, friends, and welcome back to At the End of the Tunnel podcast with yours truly, Light Watkins. Our guest today, at least for me, he's the epitome of that Emerson quote, our chief want is someone who will inspire us to be what we know we could be. He inspires me to no end, and I'm sure he's going to do the same for you. In this episode, we're going to hear how a regular Joe named Robert Hammond helped to create what eventually became one of New York's most iconic landmarks called the High Line. If you've been to New York in the last 10 years, you've probably heard of the High Line. Maybe you've been on the High Line. It's that amazing park that was built into the old elevated train tracks along the west side of Manhattan. And when we think about places like that, we probably imagine that they were created by some wealthy trust or a group of city planners or some big shot developers and that we could never conceive of something so massive. Well, Robert is none of those things. He was just a guy living in the neighborhood who happened to care enough about some old dilapidated train tracks to do something about it. And as you'll hear, pretty much everything in his past had been steadily preparing him and guiding him toward this path to preserve this unique park high above the concrete jungles of New York. Two things to be aware of. I recorded this podcast in Mexico City and Robert was in his office at the High Line, so my sound quality wasn't the best. Plus, Robert was clicking a pin for part of the interview, so you may hear clicking noises while he's talking, and that's what that is. 
but it's still a great story and hopefully you won't find those noises too distracting. And without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, I introduce you to Mr. Robert Hammond. So Robert, thank you so much for joining the podcast. I'm super excited to dive a little bit more into the story behind the story, which is kind of our thing here at the end of the tunnel. I always like to start these conversations talking about childhood. And we're going to get to who you are and all that later, so don't worry about that. But what was your favorite toy or activity as a child that, that you recall? Hmm. Well, I was raised by a really interesting mother who... I think if she had been born a little bit later, would have been a an artist. I, I think she was an artist, but she just didn't call herself an artist. And she just uh, gave me a really interesting childhood. For example, like we had a beehive in our living room, you know, that had a tube that went outside and we would like collect honey. And she would, you know, very unconventional, slightly maybe even unsafe. I realized we would boil lead in the kitchen on the stove and then pour it in uh, seashells to make paperweights, which again, I don't know how healthy that was, but it was really fun as a kid. We'd go to the back. There was like a, a stationery store and we'd go in the alleyway and take their paper scraps from a dumpster and then make books out of them with this binding glue that she would get. One time she was like, she wanted to show me how to make paper. So she cut down some bamboo in the yard, cut off part of the screen porch, and put the bamboo in the blender with newspaper and then poured it on, on, on the screen. So I just, I, I, I grew up with like a lot of sort of unusual childhood memories that I um, okay. that I was embarrassed about for a while you know when I cuz I realized at the time I was like wow, wow my mom's not like other people's moms in suburban Texas but now I realize it gave me a really unique perspective on things so it sounds like you enjoy taking sort of raw materials and making new things out of those materials do you remember when your mother was doing these things, do you remember feeling at the time when she would involve you in them? Do you feeling like it was a hassle or were you kind of like excited about your mom like exploring this new thing or inventing this new thing with these with these objects? No, I think you know the 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 cool part was that to me it was just sort of normal, so I didn't think that much about it. Like for instance, my mother used to walk around naked all the time. So I just assumed everybody's mother walked around naked in the house. And she would sometimes even answer the door with no clothes on. I mean, she wouldn't open it wide, you know, she would yeah, just stick yeah, her head yeah, over it. And yeah, I, I would be yeah. so embarrassed when yeah. she would do that if my friends were coming. So yeah, I I, I would kind of no, yell at her I, I guess, sometimes yeah. if so she would do that. When I was really young, I mean I always knew I was different. I always knew I liked things that other kids didn't like and that the things other kids liked, I didn't like, you know, or other boys liked, like I wasn't into sports. I wasn't, you know, I guess as I became older, like 10, 12, 13 is when I got more embarrassed about it. And, you know, I remember coming home one day and she was decomposing a stork 
a skeleton with acid in the kitchen sink <laughs> because she wanted the vertebra of the stork to, you know, to see. And I realized, okay, this is not what other mothers are doing. And I'm glad <laughs> mothers are, I don't know, baking cookies or something or working. Yeah. So when I became older, I did became embarrassed. And, and, and sometimes I wanted just a normal mom. But obviously, all of these experiments left an impression upon you, right? Yeah. So, yeah. And I think, I think to me, you, you were saying it, it, it was really like the, she was able to find beauty in mo- places most people don't look or in things a lot of people think are ugly. Like she would take roadkill home and taxidermy it herself, which was illegal, by the way. You know, so most people aren't interested in roadkill. Right. I can imagine, okay, so you have this sort of role model doing these these really un, unconventional things. Would you be out in the world too and see something and go and, and be, kind of be inspired by what your mother would do in the kitchen as a child and, and do it yourself or explore it or be excited about coming back and telling, reporting to her what you did or anything like that? Was there anything that you remember that you did on your own independently from your mother? I don't know. No, I think I, I think that was really driven by her. I, later, I, I got my own sort of odd interest in, I became, in middle school, I became obsessed with Russia, which, you know, this was in the mid 80s in Texas, which was not a normal interest. I got my parents <laughs> to, to let me go there by myself for spring break when I was in eighth grade. And then I, I lived there for three months when I was in high school. So that was like my own uh, unorthodox interest at the time. When you say by um, yourself, you mean with a school program? With obviously. a group. With a, yeah, with a group. With a with right, like a tour, a some tour sort group. of exchange, some kind of exchange. It was program. just like a tour group. They let me go on a tour group by myself. <laughs> okay, so you do you speak Russian? Did you learn how to speak any Russian? I did. I then became a Russian studies major, and then, but I never really could learn it. I, I lived over there. I studied it for several years, and I never learned it. And then, and then I just again think I think sort of like my mother. My mother would have these hobbies and interests. And then she would move on. And so I had this intense interest in Russia for eight years. And then I sort of lost interest in it. What's one or two things about Russia that you just, you really were fascinated by? I read Nicholas and Alexander, this book, and that's what got me interested. It was about the last czar, czar of Russia, whose son was a hemophiliac. And that's why Rasputin came in and how it sort of led to the downfall or the Russian revolution. And I think I was obsessed. I guess there's some early gay things that could have tipped me off or others that I was gay. I was, I loved the tragedy of it. And I loved like the opulence and jewels of the czars of Russia. I could still probably draw and point out over two dozen tiaras owned by the Romanov family. Wow. <laughs> and if you look at my Instagram, you know, like the thing it sends me, you know, like the stuff it puts up yeah. if, you, if you go yeah. to the home street. It's yeah. like tiaras and, I don't know, guys working out. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. What was 
see, what would you describe your mental state as, as a teenager? Is you're, you're going through school, you're fascinated with Russia. I can imagine you having many other peers who were also sharing in that fascination with you. So it sounds like you were also discovering your sexuality and that was unique from a lot of other people in Texas. So what was your mental yeah. state? Well, I, I also really wanted to be liked. So I knew I had these interests, but I also wanted to be liked. And again, I keep going back to my mother, but you know, she was also she she was also not like normal housewives, but she also, you know, won the tennis championship at the country club. So, you know, she was part of this upper middle class society and world, but also had this different side. And and I guess that that was something maybe I learned from her that I, I wanted because I, I wanted to be normal or have normal friends and, and be well liked, but also have this other side. And that was always sort of a struggle for me, or I felt like pulled in two directions of wanting to be normal and maybe straight, and then also realizing that I loved all of these different things. And so, you know, I think I just had the classic, uh, that gay teen experience. I, I didn't kiss a guy until I was 21, but, mm -hmm. you know, sort of a, a little tortured by that. And what did you envision yourself doing in your adult life when you were a teenager? Yeah. And, and again, the thing I always wanted to be in business, I wanted to be successful in business. So I, I didn't envision any of these interests as part of my career. So that involved going to college, probably a good college, mm -hmm. and then getting a job somewhere. Did you think about being an entrepreneur at that age or were you always thinking you, you would get a job? No, I didn't. You know, when I graduated from college, you know, and did really well in college, went to a really not good school, I wanted to be what everyone else was, the, the competitive thing to be at the time was, you know, the version of working for Google now was, you know, working for Goldman Sachs, basically an investment banker consulting. Yeah. I interviewed with those guys with Goldman Sachs. That was absolutely the gold standard of, yeah, uh, yeah. of jobs. You know, now people are probably embarrassed to go to investment bank or, or right. consulting. Because it's clear um, you're all you're in it for just the money. You don't have to yeah. pass it in your yeah, heart. Exactly. Exactly. I couldn't get a job. I'm looking right here on my desk is still the stack of letters about I got I don't know if it's seventy two or sixty rejection letters from basically every consulting firm and every investment bank. And, I, and I'd often make it to the final round and then not get it. And as of the time we're on, all my friends got jobs. And like, you know, several months after graduating, I still didn't have a job. And I finally got a job at Ernst & Young doing consulting. What does your mother think about this this endeavor to go work in finance? You know, my parents just were all, sort of always verging on didn't care to supportive of whatever I wanted to do. I think that I was always pretty driven as a kid, and so they they sort of just never worried about me that it would it would work out for me. I remember my dad was sort of upset because he was like, "Wait, I paid for this super expensive school and you don't have a job." But he didn't say it like, what the fuck? Why don't you have a job? He was just sort of like, wow, 
that's surprising. You know, right. you go to an Ivy League school. I thought you just got a job. Right. He didn't go to an Ivy League school, I'm, I'm assuming. No, dad. everyone in my family went to University of Texas. Okay. And what was he doing? What was he up to at the time? There was a family jewelry business that had been in my family for, I guess, like four generations. And it had gone bankrupt maybe when I was in high school. And then he became – he sold estate jewelry. So he was in sort of an unrelated field, although he was never really that into his business. He, his, his passions were architecture, parks, and preservation, which, you know, ironically, if, if you think about, you know, those are the things I, I found my career. <laughs> I managed to create a career around combining all of those things. But is that something he would talk about at the dinner table? He'd say, "Oh gosh, guys, this park, you know, they're we're preserving." Yes, he would this take aspect. me to them. He 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 involved me in all those things. We would go to parks regularly, and parks in the other side of town where we didn't live, where we were the only white people at that park and swimming. Right. And and would your eyes roll when he would invite you to come to these places, and you think, "Oh gosh, I re- really rather be playing video games or something." No, I liked it. And I was just thankful he wasn't making me play sports, which he loved. <laughs> and, you know, he the made me solid. do one season of T-ball. And he tells me, I don't remember it, but I, I, apparently I hit a, a good hit. And he was like, oh, he's going to love it. And he had promised me, if you do this once, you'll never have to do any sport again. And I did it. And I said, I never want to do a sport again. Hey there, really quickly. Have you wanted to find your purpose or be more grateful or start a daily meditation practice, but you're not quite sure where to begin? Well, if inner work is like a drop of water, thehappinessinsiders.com is like your ocean. That's my online community where you can learn real world techniques for cultivating more fulfillment from the inside out. So whether it's learning how to manifest abundance or access your potential or overcome fear or even just start walking every day. I've got a blueprint for you, which means you no longer have to use any more shoddy guesswork and you don't have to use the lone wolf approach to improving yourself. For a small accountability fee, you'll get community, you'll get accountability directly from me, and you'll get comprehensive instructions for getting your meditation practice off the ground. And for my podcast listeners, you'll receive 30% off of the all access pass if you go to thehappinessinsiders.com right now and use the promo code HAPPY. Again, thehappinessinsiders.com. Enter the promo code HAPPY and you'll get 30% off on a yearly all-access pass, which gives you access to dozens of inner work challenges and masterclasses, such as my 108-day meditation challenge, which has an 80% completion rate. Plus, You get to join me live for weekly meditations on Zoom and much, much more. That's thehappinessinsiders.com. The code is happy. All right, back to the episode. But I would love to go to go with you to the park. (laughs) Yeah, he would take me. I don't know. I didn't I didn't think about it as like, oh, this is great. Or, oh, I wish I didn't have to do that. He just involve me in it and we he would show me old buildings and yeah okay so you're now out of college you're working at uh, ernest young and and i hated you, it you hated it you and knew, I, you knew right I, away that you hated it i'm assuming i realized why i didn't 
all the I got rejected from all those companies because they knew I could do the job. I was like just as smart, you know, as everybody else that they were interviewing. It was that I think they could smell that that's not where my heart was. I think it could just sort of smell me as not a good investment banker. <laughs> so you're living in this is all happening in New York City, right? Yeah. Yeah. And so, so I quit year, what, after a year. I hated what, it. I, I knew what, the when when in the first info session, you know, like that first day of work at Ernst Young, they would put everybody in an auditorium and they would, I don't know, you know, give you this orientation. And like there was a part of me calling out that was just saying, walk out, walk out, you know, walk out. Like this is just not you and you're going to be miserable here. So what were you doing in your spare time while you were working at Ernest & Young for this first year? You didn't want to be there. What, 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 how were you spending your free time? Were you reading things? Were you taking walks in parks? Or what, what were you up to? Well, I moved to New York with my boy. I met my boyfriend at the time in college, and we moved to New York together. And we first lived in Brooklyn, but then we got an apartment in the West Village because at the time it was super cheap. I, I, you know, It's sort of a joke. I got three months free rent. Because no one wanted an apartment, you know, on the far west village, and I had a lot. We had a lot of parties. We'd he- throw huge parties. We I joined the gay master swim team. I started meeting gay friends because in college I didn't have a lot of gay friends, so it was the first time I sort of started having more gay friends. I went to the first. I went to the Roxy, which was a big gay nightclub, for the first time. So sort of definitely not going to any parks, drinking a lot. Throwing up on Sunday morning from drinking too much on Friday and Saturday. So a lot of a lot of sounds like some coping was happening because you had this job that you really didn't like. So you would just kind of go no. hard the other direction. No, because I after I quit that job, I kept drinking <laughs> and kept going out. So just being young in New York City and gay yeah, and coming out. I think enjoying. you know. I think I, I don't know. I don't know what happens to queer kids now, but I think then it's like sort of feeling through my 20s and early 30s is like feeling I needed to make up for lost time or wanting to explore this life I felt like I never really had. And then when my boyfriend and I broke up, I was a dating machine, you know, and just would go out, hook up. And I was living like sort of a gay life in in New York City in in the 90s. And when you had made the decision to quit, well, tell me a little bit about that process. What would that feel like? Was it the hardest thing? No, I did. I just was no. I was just like, I gotta quit. And, <laughs> but it's still very ambitious. I mean, I I, I was like, I want to be successful. And so, <laughs> and 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 I, my my trajectory was, I thought, was work for two years at Ernst and Young, and then go to business school. I remember like my. Second week at work, I went to like a Harvard Business School information session. I was like, I need to know what I need to do to get in. But then I sort of thought, okay, instead of going to business school, what if I take the money, instead of taking out a loan or to go to business school, what if I just sort of take that money and work somewhere for free for a few years, just somewhere that I was interested in? And so I sort of, I became interested in working for like a startup, which there really were almost no internet startups in 
95 or very few, or I guess it was 94, 94. But I ended up working for a company that was trying to put catalogs in hotel rooms and offer overnight delivery. And so I said, they said, we don't have any money. And I said, I'll work for 15000 a year. And they said, okay. Did you have a connection with these guys or you just kind of cold called them? and Like a friend of a friend from college. And I liked it. I realized I was really good at, because I was doing everything from, I was doing everything. You know, there was only three of us starting this company and, and then I ended up doing a lot of sales, which at first I really hated because I didn't like the rejection, but I quickly learned to, instead of having sales goals, because I was just by myself in this room in Soho, you know, calling hotel general managers, trying to get them to put in a catalog. I mean, it was very, it was almost <laughs> like selling, you know, like hairbrushes door to door. Right. <laughs> right. Um, and with a similar success rate. And so I had a rejection goal instead of a sales goal. And so I couldn't go home until I had been rejected, you know, a certain number of times. So it just Was that removed... something that you intuited or did you read that in some business book somewhere that that's what you need to do? No. I was a big self-help book guy, you know. I had a lot of Louise Hayes on my shelf. So maybe I read it, but I don't know. I don't I didn't think that much about it. I was just like I just was like, okay, let's have a rejection goal. And then I started, then I was like, oh, this works in bars too. Is, you know, like, <laughs> instead of like waiting for, you know, the, the, the normal way is you like wait and see if they look at you and then you look at them and you look at them and, then, you know. And then instead I would just, as soon as I found someone that I, I liked, right, I would just go up to them and offer to buy them a beer, like right away. And they would always be sort of surprised because guys usually don't buy guys beers. And if they took the beer, you know, they were interested. And if they didn't, they were always very flattered to be asked, you know, and then I, I just wouldn't waste my time. So that was one of the, the most important things I learned in that job was just that rejection is not sort of irrelevant. I don't know. It's just, it's yeah. not about you. It's just part, you got to go. It's a numbers game. It's like, sales is a science in some ways and that you're going to have to have a and if you're not asking enough you don't have big enough goals or if you're not getting rejected i'm sorry if you're not getting rejected then you're not asking enough or you don't have big enough goals were you able to convert a lot of those no's into yeses eventually at that job yeah i don't think i was like a master i think i'm a good at sales because i i'm a likable guy i'm a nice guy so i think that helps in sales but it wasn't like i was a sales genius and uh, again part of sales is just showing up and asking but we we did get in a lot of hotel i mean we did get in eventually we were in about half the hotels in new york what was your emotional state at this time you know i think i was always a little depressed and anxious i mean i couldn't sleep I had trouble sleeping. You know, I'd be exhausted from either working or drinking or staying up all night. And then I would come home to go to bed and I'd put my head on my pillow and my head would explode with thoughts and anxiety. And, and then I would get angry that I wasn't sleeping. And, and so I started therapy probably in my late 20s. And I, you know, read a lot of self-help books. I drank more. 
um, some of those things were helpful, some were not. But the anxiety just sort of stayed with me, and I, and I had that as a kid. So you don't really remember not having anxiety then? Yeah. Yeah. So that's just something you just dealt with. You probably thought everybody had anxiety. Mm, I don't know. Because I, I was like, I, I thought I didn't have to have this anxiety. I didn't believe that this was my life. I mean, that's why I started therapy. Yeah. Where'd you think it was coming from? You know, part of, you know, people, some, there's definitely people, there's a lot of alcoholism in my family on all sides. And that was something I was aware of really young. My brother was nine years older and, you know, he went into rehab the first time when I was probably 10. So I don't know. I just, I, I knew that that kind of thing can run in families. I knew, um, I also just felt like I didn't have to, I could be happier. There was something better. And that's definitely why I started going to therapy, which was incredibly helpful. And I had done off and on for the, you know, my whole life and, but it didn't, it helped other areas of my life. It helped my relationships. It helped me at work. But I guess like a lot of things, it wasn't a quick fix. I sort of wanted something to just make me feel better. Right. And, and, so, and, and that's when I first started to learn to meditate is I, you know, because I read all these books, they said meditate. You know, I, don't, I can't remember which course or class I went to first, but I couldn't sit down for, you know, more than three or five minutes and it felt like torture and I just never did it. But over, you know, the next 15 years, I've probably tried a dozen different kinds of meditation mm -hmm. to varying degrees of success. Okay. So you started meditating. But yeah, I took, I took some meditation class. I wouldn't say it was meditating. <laughs> you know? It's one thing well, it to like a read a Thich Nhat Hanh book, but it doesn't mean that you, you know, you're devotee, don't watch devotee TV while eating dinner. <laughs> okay. I read the book, but. So you're doing, you're dabbling, you're a meditation dabbler. You're dabbling yeah, in meditation. There's a whole bunch of stuff. And yoga. I got really into kundalini yoga. I did a lot of kundalini yoga. Mm. But you, it sounds like you're understanding the importance of self-care and of inner work. And even though you yeah. may not be a super consistent, you at least acknowledge yeah. that that's something that's, that's yes. adding some value to your life. So your job at the time, satisfaction-wise, are you, are you feeling good about it? Are you thinking about what's my next move? Yeah, what, what, I, where are you? So then I actually I, – the company was almost going under. So I started working for this AIDS HIV site that was for-profit. And we were going around and trying to sell basically an early internet company. I mean, it was called .com then, those kind of companies. And we'd go to, you know, we had a PowerPoint that said like the World Wide Web and usage is going to go up and people are, you know, it was in those early days. And I eventually went on the board of that company and it became the largest HIV website. It's still around called thebody.com. And, and I, even being a gay man and incredibly worried about contracting HIV. I, I, I was not doing it for altruistic purposes at all or for my own community. It was strictly a for-profit venture and I didn't even probably stop me from having unsafe sex, sadly. But that and then I was sort of bouncing back between that and this catalog company. Then the catalog company got bought by a catalog company in New Jersey. So I actually started working in New Jersey and, and that's when 
we switched the business plan from hotels to airlines. And so we started competing against Sky Mall, which was a catalog that used to be in the back of seaplanes. And of course, we expanded. We got into Northwest Airlines, which has gone away, but we got into American Airlines. And, and then I started painting. That was the other thing I found as an outlet because my work was not – I love my – I love that catalog. Like, mm-hmm. I mean, basically – I was selling our two best sellers were nose hair removers and a gold rose. So, you know, just selling <laughs> schlock out of my airplane. <laughs> but I loved it. It was like, you know, it felt like mine. I the the founders ended up leaving, so I was sort of running it within this larger company and I mean, it was like my baby. I it had no social purpose, but you know, it was like my thing. And I, I loved it and got a lot of joy out of it, but it wasn't that creative. So I started sort of painting on my own at night and started then toying with the idea of quitting my job and becoming a full-time artist. you say your motivation is in life at this point? I mean, because it doesn't sound like you're motivated by money. You're not looking for the biggest salary or, you know, accolades or rewards. Mm, I was sort of probably liked some accolades and, and <laughs> some finance, but I guess that's where I was a little torn on, but you know, sort of wanting both or I, but then I was driven by, I don't know, there was this night at this place called Bowery Bar and they had this gay night on Tuesday night. And like one of my driving factors was how can I stay up till three on Thursday night on Tuesday night and stay at Bowery Bar. (laughs) I started going to Fire Island in the summer and then I got hired by a watch company to start a retail. I mean, a, a internet division for a watch retailer and that's when I first got interested in the Highline. Or maybe the Highline was before that. I don't remember. But so I was painting. I was doing work. I was going out a lot. Had a lot of friends. Had a lot of parties. Went to a lot of parties. I remember reading something. You read an article about the Highline being demolished? Or had you, had yeah, you already- it was actually when I was working in New Jersey. No, it was when I was working in New Jersey. And I, had, I got my own office. And so I could do other things. And so I read an article that it was going to be demolished. And actually, you know, the truth, the part of the story that I don't tell, which is maybe this, I guess, I don't know what you want, is I'd done the forum, which is a three day or four day self help seminar that my right, boyfriend. It's land, landmark, right? Landmark. Landmark. landmark, landmark. You know, yeah. the old Est from the 70s, basically. Yes. And my boyfriend sort of at the time made me do it. And I really didn't want to do it and then did it. And I sort of li- I liked it. And then I did this second part called self-expression and leadership where it, it takes place over a summer. You go once a night and you do a project. You, you find a project. And each week they sort of teach you new tools to use in that project as a way of sort of teaching leadership. I was looking for a project. So they said, okay, find a project. So I was sort of, that's why when I read that article in the Times that they were going to tear down the Highline, I was like, oh, maybe this is a project. And I brought it back to them and they said, no, that can't be because it's not because it's like unrealistic, but you can't do that in three months. 
that's a little bit longer. So I did, my project was to, to start an art co-op, a cooperative. Had you even noticed the High Line before then? Had you, had you yeah. thought about it at all before you read that article? Or I went to this bar that's still there called Automatic Slims on Washington and Bank. And they had a picture. It's in front of this building called Westbeth that is an old, great historic building. And the High Line used to run through that building. And on the, outside, still the, on the outside of that bar, they had a picture of the train and the High Line running through that building. And the photo's still there. And I was like, how cool that a train used to run through my neighborhood. And then I would see it in the meatpacking, you know, part of the remains, but I didn't really, I didn't really think about it that much. It didn't, it was really when I saw it in the New York Times, it was in the summer of 99 and I was 29. And in the article in the Times, they had a little map and you could see it, it was like, wow, it runs through New York. It's, you know, a mile and a half long. That's sort of cool. Because back oh, in those days, nobody really went to that part of town. You, no, you, well, you just, you just yeah, didn't go to did. that part gay, of town. The gays did. The gays, the gays did. did. <laughs> okay, so it, you you had to go under the High Line to go to Roxy. That's how I was described it to people. Uh, I was like, you know that thing you go under the High Line, you know, to go to Roxy or Twilo or the Tunnel or that's what it was. Because I was in New York at that time. I never went to that part of town. You know, yeah. I just I, did you go to fact, any of those clubs? Did you ever go to the Tunnel? No, I've heard about the yeah. Tunnel. I heard about the. Yeah. I heard about all of those clubs, but I just it just you know it was just never yeah. a reason yeah. to go there. Yeah, so. and before a generation before that's where all the leather and sex clubs were over mm. by by this area so so all the gays know about the high <laughs> they didn't the know what it was line. i mean people didn't you just, no one called you just, it the high line they just saw no. this, this old uh, just elevated train relic. tracks yeah yeah so right so when i saw the article i had vaguely knew it you know in a in a vague way and so even though it wasn't going to be my like landmark project I still was sort of interested in it and I thought I would just explore things. So I started calling around. I went to my first community board meeting, sat next to another guy, actually came home from Fire Island early. So you found out about this meeting, how, and then what, what inspired you to go to this thing? Cause I don't, you know, a lot of people, just normal people don't go to community board meetings. They, they see that as yeah. kind of a, <laughs> well, I didn't, I didn't, I'd never been, I never wanted to go to one. Right. Um, so what was that well, moment before? The other thing I had done in the nineties is my roommate or our good, my boyfriend's roommate in college ran for city council when he was really young. We were all, you know, in our twenties, he, at the, and I helped fundraise for him. And I realized I like fundraising is just sort of like sales and there's a lot of rejection. But I liked throwing, you know, events for him. And he had become a city council person. So when this started, I, I called him up and told him about it. And he says, well, that sounds like a stupid idea. And he gave me the lo my local city council person. They gave me someone on the community board. That person said, well, that's never going to happen and stupid idea. And then that person called me back and said, actually, it's on the agenda for a meeting if you want to come. And so I was like, hmm. you know, I, I, it was interesting enough that I came back from Fire Island because uh, it was in, in August and came back and found this community board in Penn South. And there were so few people there. 
And wait, so when your friend told you it was a stupid idea, did, were you thinking to yourself, "I'm going to prove you wrong," or were you thinking, were you were you deflated, and you just decided I'm going to keep going anyway and, and explore this a little bit more? What was your feeling when he told you that? Because that's someone you obviously work with, you admire to some extent enough to call them at least. When they said it was a stupid idea, how did you feel? I guess I had enough confidence that you know I could see things that other people couldn't see sometimes, and so and that was willing. I, I you know I'm I'm very determined, <laughs> and I can be very driven. And I think, I don't know why this was just something like I wanted, I was just interested in, I didn't think it would ever. And again, I, years into the project, I knew this thing would probably never happen. I knew the chances were low. I, you know, what helped was a lot of self-help books, you know, Mm -hmm. (laughs) just sort of saying, do it. I remember writing in the forum, the forum was actually helpful in that way. You know, I remember one of the, and ironically, a lot of the, things that they were teaching in the form, I ended up using on the Highline. Not even, I wasn't even like thinking about it necessarily, but it's like find a partner and enroll them into your vision and that kind of thing. And the guy sitting next to me at the community board was interested in that. He was the only one that showed any interest in saving the thing. And so I was like, well, why don't you do something and I can help? And he was like, no, you do something and I'll help. And I was like, okay, well, let's, exchange business cards and maybe we'll do something together. And then like, you know, enroll a community. You know, we put out flyers. Like the Highline is so, this this thing is so old. The idea, you know, Google was a year old when we started this. I mean, we used to put flyers on telephone poles. Like that's how we got the word out. In 99 was a different world. I would still look people up in the telephone book. So when you got home from the meeting, you met Josh, your future Highline partner, and you felt obviously a little bit excited, I'm assuming, yeah, about the possibilities. I, don't even remember. I mean, I didn't I, I didn't it was just like a project for me for a long time, like a fun it was like a hobby. You know, I didn't one, I never thought it would be a career because it didn't it just didn't seem like a career. And I knew the chances were like one in a hundred of it happening. So I did how many hours were you, did you start putting into this project uh, well, per week? I was, you know, I, I remember when I took the, the job working for the, the watch company trying to, to launch their website. I remember I told them I have this project and so I might occasionally go to meetings during the week. And then that, that company got bought out. Um, I think sunglass hut bought it. And so I made a little money and I dropped out of college with my boyfriend when I first met my boyfriend and we took a year off from college and I promised myself I'd take, I'd, I'd take a year off every 10 years or so. And so I was turning 30 and I made some money and my plan was to go to like Bali and enjoy myself and then come back and figure out what I wanted to do next. But instead of doing that, I just started working more on the Highline and when my money ran out... I got consulting jobs to pay my bills and to sort of hedge my bet against, you know, if the hiring never happened. What was the working name for it at the time? What were you calling that project? 
we found right away we called it the High Line because its official name was West Side Elevated Rail Viaduct. <laughs> not very sexy. <laughs> right. So and who came so, up with the name Highline? Well, we'd seen it as a nickname. We don't know where it came from or when it started. We'd seen it as a nickname, but we said, you know, that's a great name. So or was that where people would go and get high back in the no, 90s? No, it, it wasn't. It wasn't like for that. But one of the first things we did, because I came like from a marketing background, is get a logo. So we had Paula share. I was actually... I was talking to her about doing a rebrand for this watch company. And I went up to her after she did her pitch for us to hire her. And I said, oh, I don't have this nonprofit. Would you do the logo? And so she did the logo, sort of hoping to get the business for the watch company. <laughs> and, you know, that H logo is still our logo. And now, I mean, I just met with her yesterday. She's, she's do, redoing our branding again. So, you know, that branding that she did in 1999 ultimately became the brand for the whole Highline. Was there an access point, entry point to the Highline at the time? Or how did you get up there for the first time? You could sneak up. There were places you could sneak up. But being sort of square and not maybe a rule breaker, I called up. Josh and I asked the railroad that owned it if we could give get a tour. And they actually took us up there in the fall. I think it was September 99 they took us on a tour and that's when i really fell in love with it because you went up there and there was a mile and a half of wildflowers running right through the city i mean it was just you know when i was first interested in it i never knew what was on top and then when we went up there it was just you know glorious So they saw a bunch of scrap metal that they could sell off and you guys saw a potential for something that people could enjoy. Uh, I mean, the, for years the railroad, come. it was much more complicated because it was still technically in legal terms, an active working railroad, even though no train had run on it in 20 years. But there was a group of property owners and Giuliani, Mayor Giuliani at the time, who wanted to tear it down. The railroad didn't want to tear it down because they were going to have to pay to tear it down. And it would have cost $20, $30 million to tear it down. So the railroad was actually just trying to do nothing. So when we started wanting to save it, they played us against the people that wanted to demolish it because their goal – and they because they never, I think, thought we would ever be successful at saving it. Just, they wanted nothing because that was in the best economic interest for them is for nothing to happen to it. So it was a complicated, there was just a, a lot of complicated legal issues. The city and the property owners sued the railroad. We sued the city. You know, there were just lots of lawsuits. And, and our goal in the beginning was, you know, let's, let's stop it from being demolished. So let's, uh, let me just get this straight. All right. I just want to kind of pull all of this together that you're talking about. So you'd learned about the power of enrolling people into your vision through this uh, this landmark form class that you, you were doing. Your watch company already had a designer on the hook. You're reading self-help books nonstop. Your sort of, I don't know what you call it, gay adventures took you under what was – to be known as the High Line. <laughs> so you were very familiar with that structure. You had started meditating, head of this nose hair company 
this nose hair clipper company and then watch company. It sounds like you could sell ice to Eskimos. <laughs> and, uh, and for you being rejected was like changing t-shirts. Uh, so your good friend, well, I don't know. I, just councilman. To, I don't know if all of that is totally, accurate, <laughs> but I would say that is a, a cartoon version of it. Okay. But, a stereotypes. So, your good friend yeah. happens to be a councilman. And you had experience raising money for his campaign. Your mom had a knack for repurposing random items. Your dad's hobby was working as a park preservationist. You go to this meeting that your friend tells you about, and there's another guy who's looking for a project. You happen to be taking a year-long sabbatical that just happens to be coming up around around this time. I mean, it seems like everything in your entire life (laughs) had been preparing you for this moment. (laughs) I mean, when you look back at it now, does it seem like that? Not really, because I think it could have just gone in a completely different direction. And the thing could have not happened, too. I mean, it's like, I mean, part of it was because a lot of luck, and it's making me sound like I'm solely responsible for it happening, where the reality was, one, this partner that I met, you know, who who became the other co-founder was incredibly helpful. And then, you know, I, I feel like my big best talent is finding really smart people being able to get them excited about something and then listening to their advice and being able to execute when you met your partner josh did you feel enough of a connection to to know that you wanted to kind of go into this battle with him to get this thing done? I mean, how how long were you anticipating the whole thing lasting in the very beginning? I mean, no, I don't think Josh and I had some special connection. How long did I think? You know, at first, I also just thought, since he and I had no experience in this, I mean, you're, you're making it sound like it was the perfect experience. On the other hand, I was working for a watch retailer launching a website and I was a history major in college. Like, it doesn't sound like the perfect experience to do this. And he was a travel writer. So we had no architecture planning. But what I, what I mean by that is you had the perfect amount of naivete. Because I think somebody yeah, who yeah, knows exactly, about this stuff exactly, would exactly. never have thought they could pull it exactly, off. Because they would exactly. know about all of the red tape and the bureaucracy and the, you know, every, all the money you'd have to raise. So it's like you, yeah. you almost were perfect in that you didn't know what was, what was, what was ahead of you. Yeah. And I think we we both thought, well, why don't we get someone else to do this? You know, so our goal in the first few months or maybe a year was trying to find another organization to take this on. Because I think we knew it was a big enough endeavor that and neither he nor I wanted to quit our jobs or we're really thinking about like making this our career. So our goal was to find another nonprofit to take it on, which we quickly found no one wanted to do because no one thought it would either thought it was dumb or they thought it would never happen. So no one, you know, wanted to take it on. So who, who in your personal life was rallying behind you on this? Did you tell your dad? Did you tell anybody like that about what you thought, what you you were thinking about? I mean, my parents were, you know, even, you know, ironically, my parents after being weren't that, I think they were a little nervous because they were like, this doesn't sound and my mom asked me, what are the chances of it happening? And I said, one in a hundred. And she was like, well, are you sure you should be spending that much time on it? So even they 
were a little cautious um, at first. But my best friend from college worked for a real estate developer, and he was really interested in it. And I was always jealous because my friend had this amazing boss. And I'd always wanted a boss like him. And so, and he was a real estate developer, but he was, he and his wife were really interested in sort of nonprofits and like smaller, like printed matter, which does zines and creative time and sort of not like the normal big arts nonprofits. And so he introduced me to him who eventually became my board chair and really became my mentor and sort of friend and my best friend that uh, we started this, you know, he also became, he's been on the board for 20 years. And that elected official, my friend, you know, when I originally told him, he thought it was a really, he, he was like, that is a stupid idea. <laughs> and he told me to talk to my local city council person. And eventually his mom was a garden designer and she got involved. And eventually he, when he came up and saw it, he fell in love with it. So he was critical and he helped get the Bloomberg administration on board. So we, Giuliani was the mayor at the time. And I mean, who knew that he could even get worse than he was then, but he has, but he wanted to tear it down. He actually signed a demolition order a few days before he left office. So in the first few years, we were fighting the city, city hall, basically Mayor Giuliani to stop them from tearing it down. So my friend ultimately became speaker of the city council and he became really helpful. And then the Bloomberg administration came in, Mayor Bloomberg, and eventually became really supportive. And it became this public-private partnership. We couldn't have done it without Bloomberg, and probably Bloomberg couldn't have done it without us. So it became a really great partnership. How much of your time and headspace was this occupying in those early days before it looked like it was going to become anything? Was this something you were working on all day long? You'd wake up in the morning and do your to-do list and it'd be like, hey, yeah, call up the city councilman and try to find someone for the board. I was out late, so I was definitely not up in the morning. So, you know, um, uh, Josh, the other co-founder, jokes that he quickly learned not to schedule any meetings before eleven. But, you know, it was probably in the early days about half my time and then it kept growing because I eventually I had to get I started doing consulting, you know, to pay my bills. And again, I didn't think this was I, I was a part time painter then. So I was painting. I had a few. I, my my landmark project was actually creating an artist co-op and we did some shows. Were you thinking that I'm, I'm probably going to become a painter and I'm just going to do this thing on the side? <sighs> no, I don't. No, I sort of thought I would have, I, I really liked painting on the side. I didn't, I don't know if I ever fully wanted to be a full-time painter. I've always liked doing different, having like sort of multiple jobs. And, you know, now I think of myself as having two main jobs. I teach meditation and I run the Highline. I feel like they're both, you know, amazing jobs. <laughs> I feel really lucky. And, and now being a parent, I guess, is another I feel like each the, uh, when I was a full-time meditation teacher, I didn't like it as much. Or I feel like I'm better when I'm doing multiple things. Uh, maybe mm -hmm. that's just my personality. So you, you relatively recently adopted a son. 
And obviously, when you bring your son home, up until that point, it's like, oh, you know, maybe there's some chance to back out. When was that moment for you with the High Line? When were you? When did you know you 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 were in too deep? You could, there was no backing out. You just had to see the thing through to the end. Or did you ever feel like that? I mean, I had a weird, and this is like sort of the op. You know, most people say, well, you just you believe it's going to happen the whole time, and that makes it happen. Mm-hmm. I sort of thought it would never happen, <laughs> even. <laughs> because I knew all of the sort of weird difficulties and legal problems and political problems and financial issues. And I just thought it would fall apart at some point. And I think I was okay with that. And even when we started construction and we're going to open it, I also knew that it could fail and that people might not want to climb up three flights of stairs to walk on an elevated walkway that has a history, you know, elevated walkways have a history of failure in urban planning in the U S and that would all the plantings die? Cause they're all this planting you see up there is in 12 inches of soil basically. And it's on a bridge. So it freezes from above and below it heats from above and below. It's a really harsh environment. Would all the plants get trampled? Would the plankings collapse? So, you know, even when we opened, I wasn't sure, is this thing going to work? How were you paying for your lifestyle? Was it through the painting while all this was happening for those 10 years? I had consulting jobs. I made some money from painting but mostly consulting jobs. And then it became, I became a employee of the Highline, the, the nonprofit. So, so you had um, to set all that up though. You and Josh had to yeah. literally go file paperwork and stand in yeah. line at some bureaucrat's <laughs> office and just go through the whole thing. <laughs> yeah. And it grew, you know, gradually. I mean, that's, I think it's one of the advantages. It took 10 years from when we first started to when we opened. And now it's been 10 years we've been open roughly. It's about, about I've been doing this for 20 years. And I think one of the advantages of it taking a long time is you you have that time to build the organization and build a community of supporters and build donors and build staff. So there's some advantage to it not have something happening, that kind of overnight success. I've heard you say that during that 10-year process, you were at some points battling with depression, anxiety, and things like that. Were you having to talk Josh down off the ledge at all? Or was he having to talk you down off the ledge? I mean, were, were both of you guys pretty stable as a team? Or how, what was that dynamic like over the years? I don't think stable is a word either one of us would have used to describe. Each but it was, other, I'm imagining it was mostly a seesaw. No, 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 it's mostly a seesaw. You can't um, have both people feeling like we want to give up. One person has to like step in and go, no, 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 we can do this. And then another I never, year. I never wanted to give up. It's different not sharing you're going to be successful and not wanting to give up. I never wanted but to just, give up. But just, you know, cheering the team on like, guys, we can do this. Who is that person? I was the one, the risk taker wanting to do, take more risks and do it bigger. And mm-hmm. he was probably the more cautious one and realizing my big ideas would require a lot of work <laughs> and money. And so he was probably the more practical one. And, you know, it was difficult. It's difficult being that relationship of co-founders. We went through three different coaches over the course. Every sort of five years, we had different, we had, we had new coaches come in and help 
sort of keep us together because our personalities were so different. Ultimately, I think it helped the project, but it was sometimes difficult for ourselves and the other staff. And we couldn't have done it if our partnership had sort of fallen apart. I don't know if it would have happened because I don't think either one of us could have done it. One, because we needed the other's sort of skills and and balance. And then there was a just kind of only he and I really knew how tenuous this thing was. And we both, the one, the one trait we shared is we were always thinking about what was next. So even when we got great news, he and I immediately started thinking about the next problem. And I think that's something that most founders of nonprofits or entrepreneurial startups share is they're constantly thinking about sort of the next set of problems. I heard that on a podcast, somebody, some, I forget which one it was, but somebody was saying you guys would get like a million dollar donation in and then you'd like, yeah, okay, that's great. But we got to figure out how we're yeah. going to do this other thing. <laughs> Where's the other 99 million? Right. <laughs> well, wow, the, okay. I, the first million dollars, the thing I was amazed is it was written on a check that looked like my check. Like, right. I don't know why I thought like million dollar checks would be like the size of my <laughs> desk and be like gold plated or something. But it was just this handwritten check that said one million dollars. <laughs> <laughs> What, what would you say has surprised you the most about you in this in this process, about you personally, your, maybe your character or you, so, some, something about you while you've been going through all of this that you did you weren't aware of before, but it kind of came out as a result? No, I, I think I think work for me is where like now. So I, I didn't learn Vedic meditation. I learned TM in 2004 and I did it for like three months and I quit because I got sick and I thought, Oh, it's not working if I'm getting sick. And then I met Michael Miller, a Vedic meditation teacher in 2008. And he said, do you remember your mantra? And I said, yes. And so I start, and he basically spent an hour with me and I started back up and I would sit in on his classes. And so that's when I really started a consistent meditation practices, you know, in 2000 and eight. So a few months before we opened the first section. And that was just this huge game changer for me. But it's in work that I find the hardest to, in some ways, live out the life. Of, I don't know how to even describe it. But um, I, I guess, for example, when I'm teaching, I can feel I feel really close to a way of living that I really like and admire. I admire myself in that way. And at work is where I admire myself and how I behave sort of in the office is where I admire myself the least. And I'm sure my boyfriend would disagree because he might think that <laughs> I misbehave the most, you know, maybe in my relationship with him. But I find that work is where I have the most work to do in terms of interpersonal relationships. And the most upset that I ever would get around the high line was not when... Giuliani signed a demolition order or we lost a lawsuit or we didn't get some donation. It was always over interpersonal issues. So it didn't have anything to do with the actual strategic issues at hand. It had to do 
with in some ways my personality interacting with someone else. Um, and mm-hmm. I still find that true. And, and I think it, and the hard part is I think it has gotten better, but it's just, there's so much I can see, I guess I keep, keep wanting to get it, it to get better. Or, you know, I just, one of my favorite stories was a, you know, a fellow meditation teacher of ours, Jeff Kober, was talking to one of my students and he asked, and the student was saying, I'm not sure I'm seeing any benefits from meditation. Mm-hmm. And Jeff said, are you a, a glass half empty kind of guy? And the guy said, yes, definitely. And Jeff said, well, now you have a swimming pool and it's half empty. You have so much more water, <laughs> but there's a lot more water you need to fill that swimming pool. And all you're doing, you're sitting in all this water, but you're just staring at the gallons and gallons and gallons of water you need to fill it. And mm. I, you know, when I, when he, I, that just struck me because that's definitely part of my personality and just the way that I am. Right. So you've gone from the glass to the swimming pool for yourself over the years. You left the High Line. You, you retired. Well, I didn't retire. I didn't retire. (laughs) I was just going to do something else. (laughs) (laughs) And then you came back. You came back to your position. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So in 2014 or 2013, I decided I'd been at the High Line for 15 years. It was up and running and I decided I wanted to do something else. I didn't want to die, you know, at the High Line. And, And then I decided to go to India and become a meditation teacher. But I didn't think I was going to become a full-time meditation teacher. I had a had an inkling that that wouldn't be the right fit for me, that I liked the idea of meditation teacher and doing some other career. And so when I came back from India, I was teaching full-time and looking for what my next job was going to be. And then it wasn't the transition that they had created after I left wasn't working. And so they said, you have to come back. And I said, I don't want to come back. And they said, you have to come back. And I said, well, you have to start. You have to hire a headhunter because I don't want to get stuck here. So they hired a headhunter. I came back temporarily. And then by the time they found someone to fill my spot, I had fallen in love with it again and got really re-excited about it. And it was because it was like a different job. The issues were so different from the first 15 years that I got really invigorated. And in some ways, I think what the issues we have in front of us right now are more interesting than the first 15 years. So I guess that's why I'm surprised I'm still here. I've been here now for 20 years. You know, what's interesting is maybe in those first 15 years, you probably, there's a part of you that probably felt like it couldn't run in in the integrity that you guys had started it in without you. And then you got to see that it actually did do that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it probably mm-hmm. went beyond you. And so now that you're mm-hmm. back, you can kind of just enjoy it as a, almost like a fan. Almost, yeah. Right. Yeah. I don't know. I feel like sometimes I'm the Highline's big, uh, a big critic of the Highline. <laughs> you see I got in trouble by you it. See if you Google my name, if you Google, Google my name in the Highline, you'll come up with a headline that says Highline co-founder says Highline is total failure. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know. I, I, is that something that someone took out of context? That they, they did take it out say? of context, but I was, I can be critical. I, we have a weird, the reason I find it interesting is because we have a different problem 
we have a problem of over success. We have 8 million people coming on the Highline every year. And we have a kind of neighborhood that's gone through a kind of change. No neighborhood has had this much development this fast, probably anywhere in the country in the past 10 years. And so that puts a lot of strain on the neighborhood, on the Highline. And the Highline is intricately involved in creating the neighborhood. So it's, it's this story of sort of good and bad. And so I think our full potential, we've obviously been a huge economic catalyst for development. But to me, that's only half the potential for what this can become. And sort of, I think, in some ways, is the jury still out on, are we going to be a true social success? And I get criticized for being critical of the Highline sometimes, hence that article. <laughs> but to me, that's the interesting part is how, how do we not just rest on our laurels and say, okay, it's great, it's successful, we got a lot of people coming. But how do we use that success in a way? So, and how do you pay for it? That's the other thing. It's, it's very expensive. And the more people that come, the more expensive it is to operate. And we don't get any money from the city. So we have to raise, you know, over $15 million every year from scratch. So that, that's the other challenge, you know, and how do we, how do we figure out, how do we make that sustainable? That's what I, you know, I think is really cool about what you guys did is that it was, it was never really about the money. It was just about making something beautiful and accessible for people. And mm -hmm. um, the downside to that, of course, in, in our society is you, you're not making money off of all the money that you've made, all those people, all those developers. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's the biggest problem is we didn't, we didn't capture that value we created. And that's the thing. We created something called the Highline Network, a network of other infrastructure reuse projects all over the country. And one of the things I always encourage people to do is figure out how to capture that value. So you, the, the project benefits, you know, from what it creates. So it, you don't have to raise all that money from scratch. Looking back now, if you had approached it with that in mind, how, you know, making money, and do you think it would have taken the same Well, it's not trajectory? me making money. It's not, I mean... I mean, one, I wish I had just bought an apartment in the neighborhood. I was in a rental for 20 years. So, <laughs> you know, uh, that was not very smart. But no, I'm talking about capturing value for the organization. I so see. that we don't have to raise that money. Now I'm having to go out and ask the developers for money, even though we made them a lot of money. And is that so, a tough ask for them? I mean, don't I would think they'd want to yeah. give you guys money to keep it keep it all. No one wants to point. give you money. No one wants <laughs> to give you money. And partly because we're so successful, they they, they think you guys are rolling in money. Yeah, exactly. They go, oh, well, Barry Diller and Diamond Furstenberg will pay for it. Well, that's what I'm talking about when I say capture the value. It's really capture the value for the nonprofit. I see. So let's say somebody's listening to this. This will be the last question. Someone's listening to this, right? And they live in, I don't know, Tampa, Florida or something like that. They go out fishing in the in the ocean and they see some some ship that it capsized 100 years ago. And they think, well, Robert Hammond helped to reinvigorate the High Line. Maybe I can raise this ship and turn it into something. I mean, what, what, do, you, what do you tell <laughs> What's your what's your advice to that person if they were to reach out to you and ask you like what do you think about this project? I mean, I I always encourage people to start like 
it doesn't even have to go anywhere, but it's a fascinating exercise in just starting these things and finding out what else is out there and who else is working on these things and just how sort of community boards work, how city government and the city needs more people involved. And so even if the project doesn't happen, you know, finding out who your elected officials are, going and visiting them, to me, that is, there's a real value in that. And these people are probably more accessible than we imagine, right? Totally. That's, yes. You can, anybody can go meet with, you know, here in New York, your city council person has an office or even your congressman has a local office if you live in a decent sized city. Even your senator does. You know, when you go to Washington, you can request a meeting. You might not get to meet with your congressman or senator. You might. You can you could probably go in and see the office. You can just walk in there, probably you know, make an appointment. And you're right; it is it is surprising how easy it is to get involved in these things. Yeah. Well, Robert, I want to thank you so much for your courage and for your bravery uh, and for not giving up <laughs> on what you set out to do. And uh, I know we all look forward to seeing how the trajectory of your career continues to unfold and. Maybe this is just the start. Who knows? Great. Great. Thank you, Light. <laughs> Thanks. We'll link, to, we'll link to all the relevant information we talked about in the show okay. notes. And okay. uh, if someone wanted to reach out to you, Robert, and say, learn how to meditate, or how, how would they find you? I'm Robert at roberthammond.com. I'm on Instagram as the Highline Guy. Do you teach people like off the street or is it just private stuff? I don't have a work? website, so it's just generally word of mouth. So that's how I've... Uh, I've been able to find enough people, just other people telling, you know, okay, recommending me. So, and you teach Vedic meditation, which is the the four day training with the mantra and all of that. Yeah, yeah, and also, you know, the Highline. If people want to get more involved in the Highline, the Highline dot org and Highline NYC and on Instagram. Volunteer opportunities and yep. probably some employment opportunities and things like yep. that. Yep. Okay. Well, we'll put links to those as well. Thank you so much, cool. my friend. And okay. Um, Hope to have you on again at some point soon. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. And big thanks to Robert Hammond for coming onto the show and bearing his soul. I originally told him that the idea behind the podcast is to talk about the vulnerable in-between moments. And he joked that he had always wanted to talk about all the crying that occurred while he was creating the Highline. Apparently, that's a regular occurrence in the world of Robert Hammond and probably in the world of many people who are living their purpose. It's definitely not all sunshine and rainbows, as you can imagine. Anyway, thanks to you for listening, and make sure you're subscribed to At the End of the Tunnel so you can hear even more amazing stories about fascinating people who had to overcome all kinds of crazy odds to start their movement or to create something to help improve or inspire the lives of others. Oh, and please take a minute to rate and review the podcast if you haven't already done so. You can find links to everything Robert discussed in the show notes below. And I'll see you back here next week, same day, same time. Thanks again for listening. You want to get a little extra nudge when it comes to following your heart and taking leaps of faith and believing in yourself each day, then you want to sign up for my free daily dose of inspiration email. 
you'll join 30,000 other subscribers who receive a short inspirational story or anecdote that's meant to inspire you to become the best version of yourself each day. You can sign up at lightwatkins.com and you'll get your first inspirational message as early as tomorrow. Again, just go to lightwatkins.com. You can sign up for free and you'll wake up each morning inspired to be the best version of yourself.